Good morning, church, church family, everybody here today, and those that are listening online. Welcome to our 9.30 service. My name is Joanne. I'm a member of the Waterfall Life Group, led by Fiona and Eddie Lombard. I'm not going to tell you how wonderful we are. We know we are. Um, and the fact that I'm standing here today is, is a testament to that. And I hope I don't let them down in the Bible reading that I'm going to be doing today. Our Bible reading today is from Matthew 4, verses 23, through to Matthew 5, verses 12. Matthew 4, from verse 23, through to Matthew 5, verse 2, up to verse 12. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. Thanks, Joanne. You you did the Waterfall Life group proud. They sent their A team, clearly. Uh, Let me open in a word of prayer as as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would move by your Spirit so that we come to you this morning to hear you speak to us with nothing but empty hands and with deep and profound poverty of spirit. We pray this always, but we pray particularly this morning, Lord. Please, will you be with us? Please bring us to yourself through your Son and in the power of your Spirit. Amen. In Christian circles, a WhatsApp, an email, even an ordinary conversation will often end with, be blessed. Be blessed. Be blessed. Stay blessed. How are you? I'm blessed. Uh, Just uh, a few days ago, I was standing in a very secular setting, and someone came up, and it was fist bumps for everyone. Blessings, 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 blessings. (laughs) What, uh, what What do we mean when we do that? What do we mean when we say those things? Be blessed. We see one extreme end of the range of meaning in our culture with the idea of the blesser. A blesser, if you didn't know, is a middle-aged, normally a middle-aged married man uh, who 
funds a Santon lifestyle for his young mistress in exchange for sexual favors. This is the blesser. This is what our culture thinks it means to be blessed. The Santon lifestyle. Luxury, comfort, whatever the cost. Again, just the other day, I was driving behind a Land Rover with a license plate, blessed. Now, BMW drivers may disagree, but you get the idea. When you see blessed on a license plate or a coffee mug or a fridge magnet or pick your Christian bric-a-brac, when you see that, that's often what it means. That's what we mean by it, the Santon lifestyle. That's what we mean when we say to each other, be blessed. That's what we mean when we say it. What does Jesus mean when he says it? Hopefully by the end of this brand new series in the Beatitudes, we'll have an answer to that question. But before we start with the Beatitudes themselves, we just need to look up and get our bearings, take note of where we are. So we're in Matthew's Gospel And so far in his gospel account, Matthew has narrated the story of Jesus' birth, and then he's gone on to John the Baptist, and then the baptism of Jesus himself, and then his temptation in the wilderness. And then in chapter 4, verse 12, the ministry of Jesus proper begins. And he calls his first disciples. And then we read this. We read what Joe read for us in verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, the region across the Jordan, followed him. Large crowds followed him. His ministry had just begun, and it's gaining enormous traction. He's gathering large crowds to himself. At this point, his marketing people are probably saying, you know, it might be time for some next-level branding. Jesus Christ International Ministries. And you might, you might just want to think about the jet. But look at what Jesus does. Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he, dis- and he taught his disciples, saying, Jesus sees the crowds. He sees that his ministry is growing. His response is not what ours would be, to stir them up and build the momentum and keep the energy. His response is to withdraw, to teach a chosen few. He's not interested in numbers for the sake of numbers. He wants those who follow him to know what they're being called to. He says, effectively, he says, before you take another step in my direction, I want you to know what you're signing up for. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's not a bunch of rules. It's not a series of lectures on ethics. It's a manifesto for discipleship. It's a vision of life under the gracious, loving rule of King Jesus. It's a new covenant between God and his people. It's why Jesus presents himself as the new Moses, as the one who goes up on the mountain to receive a word from the Lord and pass it on to the people. That's Jesus. He's the true Moses. 
He's the real Moses. And I hope you can see why this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is so important for us as a local church. Because how often do we say, and we say it with full conviction, in Christ we are a redeemed family of servants on mission. And our mission under God is to make disciples who make disciples. Now if we're going to have any hope of actually doing that, we need to know what a disciple is. And what the life of discipleship is all about. Nothing will make it more plain to us than the Sermon on the Mount. And the Beatitudes in particular. When we look at the Beatitudes, the first thing we notice is that to be a disciple is to be blessed in a very particular kind of way. And it's not the ordinary way. It's not the way we might think. Life as a disciple is radically different from ordinary life in our culture. It is countercultural. The disciple is different. That's the whole message of the sermon. Right? The message of, of the whole Sermon on the Mount is discipleship is different. And we see it so very clearly in the Beatitudes. So, so let's just scan through so you can get a flavor for what I'm saying. Just look at the passage that we read. If you have a Bible on your phone, uh, on your lap, just have a look. The passage we read. Who are the blessed ones according to Jesus? Who are the blessed ones? Who are the ones to be congratulated? The poor, the mourners, the meek, the hungry, the merciful, the pure, the peacemaker, the persecuted. Is that who our society congratulates? Is that who our culture celebrates? No, that's upside down. As someone once said, it's as if Jesus broke into the shop and changed all the price tags. We don't congratulate poverty, mourning, meekness. We congratulate strength, pleasure, assertiveness, pragmatism, standing on your rights, you doing you, pushing for the win, living the life of your dreams, and so on. Not so the disciple of Jesus Christ. Don't expect any of those things. And don't expect any congratulations from the culture either. It is a radically different way of being. It's a counterculture. Just a few more general comments on the Beatitudes before we actually come to our Beatitude for this morning. Four simple questions. Who, when, where, what? Who? Who do the Beatitudes apply to? So have a look at verse 3 and then verse 10. They both talk about those in the kingdom of heaven. They are at the beginning and the end of the Beatitudes. So they function like brackets. They're telling us that these blessings are a unit. And they are for every citizen of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, all eight Beatitudes apply to every disciple. That's who. When. When do disciples enjoy this state of blessedness. When does it come to them? Again, verse 3, verse 10 stand out for us. They are the only two Beatitudes in the present tense. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The rest are in the future tense. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. So what we have here is blessing based on some future reality 
but that blessing is breaking into the present. The fullness of the blessing is going to be realized in the future, but there's also the blessing of living in the light of that future reality in the here and now. If you're engaged, the wedding is the blessing in its fullness. But there's also a blessing in being engaged as you joyfully anticipate the wedding. Another way of saying it, the blessing is both now and not yet, or in the way that the Beatitudes structure it, the blessing is not yet, but it's also now. Where? Where do we find these Beatitudes? Simple question, but a profound thing to notice. They are the first word in the Sermon on the Mount. The first word is about being, not doing. If you read any other part of the Sermon on the Mount without understanding that God's blessing comes first, you are going to misunderstand what Jesus is calling you to. Which leads us to what? What are these blessings? What are the Beatitudes? We started to say it. They are a state of being. They describe life under the gracious, saving, loving rule of King Jesus. They certainly do have ethical implications. They have profound ethical implications. But in the state of blessedness, in the kingdom of heaven, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are before you do. Character comes before conduct. Blessing comes before bidding. Indicative comes before imperative. Identity comes before ethics. And both are defined by grace. Identity comes before ethics, and both are defined by grace. Finally, we get to our verse for the day. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We want to answer three simple questions and then make three basic observations. Three simple questions, three basic observations. Our questions. What is blessing? What is the kingdom of heaven? Who are the poor in spirit? Simple questions, right? What is blessing? I've already hinted that to say blessed is so-and-so in the New Testament, in New Testament times, was at a bare minimum a statement of congratulations. These people were to be congratulated, whoever they were. They were to be congratulated. They had cause for celebration. They had a reason to be happy. In the opening, it's it's quite something, in the opening, the opening word of his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed. In that opening word, Jesus has gone straight to the heart of the human condition. Right to the heart of the human condition. He has put his finger on the number one human aspiration, to be happy. At the end of the day, that's all any of us wants, isn't it? We just want to be happy. We want to be happy. If you look at the people around you in this city, why they are doing what they are doing, whatever it is they're doing, why are they doing it? What drives them? What motivates them? What are they chasing? Happiness. They just want to be happy. Blaise Pascal puts it like this. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. 
whatever different means they use, all men tend towards this end. Some go to war, others avoid it. But all have the same desire in view. The human will never takes the least step but towards this object, happiness. Happiness is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. We all chase happiness. And we will chase it almost anywhere. Some think they're going to find happiness in marriage. Others in divorce. Some in busyness. Others in laziness. Some in food. Others in diet. Some in safety. Others in recklessness. We all chase happiness. And we've chased it everywhere under the sun. Now here's the tragic irony. None of us seems to be able to find it. 3,000 years ago, King Solomon wrote, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Solomon was an ancient religious figure. Malcolm Muggeridge is a modern atheist. At least he was when he wrote this. Of all the purposes set before mankind, the most disastrous is surely the pursuit of happiness. Happiness is like a young deer. Hunt him, and he becomes a poor, frantic quarry. After the kill, a piece of stinking flesh. He who pursues happiness will never reach it. Ancient religious man, modern atheists, same view of the world, same view of happiness. Somewhere on the timeline between the two of them is Jonathan Swift, who wrote that happiness is the, dis- is the state of being well deceived. When it comes to happiness, we all want it. We'll try anything to get it, but we can't. Even though we chase happiness, what we find is misery, or at best, an illusion. And so C.S. Lewis can describe all of human history as this, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God to make him happy. Doesn't that just sum it up for us? History is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God to make him happy. And that's actually the key to understanding true blessedness. It is more than mere happiness. It's not less, but it is certainly more. And we see that just by looking at the origins of the word happiness. Happiness is related to words like happening or happenstance. They all come from the old Middle English word hap. Hap meant luck or chance. So happiness is about your fluctuating circumstances and how they affect your emotions. And so, of course, there's a measure of luck or chance involved in that. But blessedness is about the favor of God in your life and the joy that flows from it. 
It's a happiness, but it's a happiness eternally anchored and secured in God's unchangeable will and his perfect love for you. It cannot be touched by circumstances. It's the furthest thing from luck. When we are talking about blessedness, we are talking about the true happiness that flows from God's face shining upon you. In what way does God's face shine upon disciples of Jesus Christ? What form does the blessing take? Well, it's right there in our text, isn't it? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Second simple question, what is the kingdom of heaven? Because a kingdom implies a sphere of rule, doesn't it? It's a place where sovereign power is exercised. But here's the thing. We know that God's power, his rule, his sovereignty is always and everywhere. So what does it mean to say theirs is the kingdom of heaven? That's where Jesus comes in. Kingship might be a better word because kingship combines the ideas of a king and his rule. The extent of his rule. So the kingdom of heaven is God's everywhere and always rule breaking through into the rebellion of this world. Expressing itself in the person of King Jesus and his authority over his disciples. So if discipleship is life under the gracious loving rule of King Jesus, well the kingdom of heaven is the same thing, only from God's perspective. It is the gracious loving rule of King Jesus over his disciples. And who are his disciples? Simple question number three. Who are the poor in spirit? Who are they? At this point, it's helpful to remember Matthew is a Jew. He's writing to Jews or Jewish Christians or potential Jewish converts to Christianity. And so Old Testament background is important. In the Old Testament, poverty of spirit has two sources, an external source and an internal source. Let me give you a couple of examples. Psalm 37 verse 14 says, The wicked draw the sword and bend the bow to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose ways are upright. Isaiah 61 verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. In those two texts, Isaiah 61, Psalm 37, the poor and the needy are those who are downtrodden and persecuted because of their trust in the Lord. They are stripped of everything. They're stripped of absolutely everything. They're in exile. They're stripped of everything except their trust in the Lord. This is the external source of poverty of spirit. Let's have a look at the internal source of poverty of spirit. Psalm 51 and verse 16 and 17 reads as follows. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, O God, will not despise. And Isaiah 66 verse 2 says, These are the ones I look on with favor. The blessed ones, if you like. 
those who are humble and contrite in spirit, who tremble at my word. And those two texts, Psalm 51, Isaiah 61, poverty of spirit has an internal origin. It's related to the confession of my own sin. So poverty of spirit can come from persecution or it can come from sin. In either case, it's an attitude of utter dependence on God. It's a recognition that I have absolutely nothing to bring to my salvation. Nothing. Unless he saves me, I'm lost. That my only recourse is to throw myself on his mercy, on his goodness. That's poverty of spirit. Now just a bit of a detour, because it's a question that that often surfaces in our minds. How does that relate to earthly material poverty? The teaching of the scriptures is that the two are not identical, but there is some overlap. They're not identical, but there is some overlap. Why would that be the case? Why would you often find material poverty and spiritual poverty in the same person? Because wealth, and with its status, position, power, is one of the primary sources of human pride. And human pride is the exact opposite of poverty of spirit. So in Matthew 19, when Jesus is speaking about the rich young ruler, who is the classic wealthy insider... He says, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus is rebuking the church in Laodicea, this is Revelation chapter 3, this is what he says to them. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You see, material wealth often gets in the way of recognizing our spiritual poverty. It blinds us to our spiritual poverty. Wealth creates the illusion of independence. In the words of Revelation, what do I need? I don't need a thing. But the material, materially poor, they have no such illusion. Wealth screams at us, you don't need God. The possessions of the poor are silent. Now I'm not saying, because the scriptures don't say, I'm not saying that the poor will always recognize their need for God and that the poor will always be saved. That is not the teaching of the Bible. One pastor tells the story of visiting some Algerian miners and they, that the conditions were absolutely pitiful. They, they, they're living in squalor, they're in a tin shack, it's overcrowded, they're huddled together, it smells of urine, and he goes in and he shares the gospel with them. And the, the moment he finishes, one of the miners jumps up and with a hard-hearted, we don't need God. We don't need your God. The Bible doesn't teach that all the poor will be saved and all the rich will be lost. Think of Job. Think of Abraham. Men of incredible wealth. The Bible doesn't teach that all the poor will be saved and all the rich will be lost. The Spirit blows where He pleases. But the Bible does teach that there is a significant overlap between poverty of spirit and material poverty. The Bible does teach that wealth is very dangerous to poverty of spirit. 
Very dangerous. And all of that is a massive challenge to our cultural understanding of what blessing is. Because we tend to automatically equate wealth with blessing. Not so the scriptures. Without poverty of spirit, wealth is often a curse. Without poverty of spirit, well, let me say it this way, true poverty of spirit is the recognition that whatever my bank balance, I desperately need God. Desperately. Whatever my bank balance. Okay, we can take a breath. We've answered, at least I hope we've answered our three simple questions. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean? Jesus is saying to his disciples something like this. Be glad. God's favor rests on those who depend on him. He will welcome them into his kingdom. And we've got some confirmation of our definition by looking at the woes in Matthew 23. So for every blessing in Matthew 5, you have a corresponding woe in Matthew 23. So Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Corresponding woe in Matthew 23, woe to you, you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who are trying to. Those marked by spiritual pride do not enter, and they won't let others enter. Those marked by spiritual poverty are blessed. The Lord himself invites them in. That's the simple meaning of our text. Now for three basic observations. This beatitude, this blessing, is one Radically countercultural. Radically countercultural. It is wonderfully good news. And it is a provocative invitation. Those three basic observations. It's radically countercultural. It basically says the poor are rich. It says you may be poor in spirit, but the riches, the riches of the kingdom are yours. It says something even stronger. It says the riches of the kingdom are yours because you are poor in spirit. When Jesus says, be blessed, I hope you've seen this by now. When he says, be blessed, he means the opposite of what we mean. When we say, be blessed, we, we mean, be successful, be wealthy, be confident, be self-assured, be victorious, overcome, be ambitious, assert yourself. May you prevail. That's what we mean when we say, be blessed, if we're honest. May you prevail. When Jesus says it, He's saying something entirely different. In fact, most often the things on our list are the enemies of true blessedness. They get in the way of true blessedness. True blessedness is in recognizing that before God you are naked, empty, broken, destitute. You are a wretch. You may be impressive to the world. Or you may be very impressive to the world. But to the God who sees you as you really are, you're nothing but vulnerable and weak. You need him. You depend on him completely. And recognizing that is the state of true blessedness. 
Because only in that state are you ready to receive that which can only come as a gift from God. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is yours if you will receive it as a gift. If you want to claim it as a right or an entitlement or a wage, woe to you, you hypocrite. You have slammed the door in your own face. This beatitude is back to front and upside down. The world won't even recognize it. The world is not going to know what to do with this beatitude. It does not even know how to begin to deal with this beatitude. But this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is the disciple's essential state of being. This is what the disciple is at her core. A spiritual beggar. And therefore... A spiritual beggar and therefore a citizen of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. The Bible has a word for this. It's called grace. And it is radically countercultural. If you want to give someone a message they are not going to get anywhere else, give them the message of God's grace. Give them this beatitude. The Sermon on the Mount is full of the most demanding imperatives, commandments, ethical instructions, the most demanding you're going to find anywhere. And yet, the first word, the foundation upon which everything else is built, the source from which everything else flows, that first word is a word of grace. Now that's something. That is something. It's radically countercultural. It's also wonderfully good news. It's wonderfully good news for the disciple of Jesus Christ. It's good news because deep dependence on God is what marks citizens of the kingdom. You are secure in the kingdom because your blessedness, your place in the kingdom, does not depend on you. It does not depend on you at all. It depends on God. That's what poverty of spirit means. And so your place in the kingdom is secure because it depends on him, not you. It's also good news because that security, that deep security, that unshakable security frees us and motivates us to live the life of the kingdom, that incredibly high life that Jesus calls us to. The life we, we, we need not, we mustn't be confused about this. The life that Jesus is calling us to is the life of the highest possible standards. The highest possible standards. If that call did not flow from grace, it would be nothing but a terror and a crushing burden to us. It would be an impossible task. It would be a cruel weight around our necks. It would be a prison of failure and condemnation. But because it does flow from grace, and because we are secure in that grace, and motivated by that grace, we are free to give ourselves to that life. And we do it out of love and joy and thanksgiving. We do it as children, not as slaves. Do you see 
that this is wonderfully good news for the disciple of Jesus Christ. For those who are not yet disciples of Jesus, this beatitude is also a provocative invitation. And it's provocative because it presents us, presents you, if you are not yet a disciple of Jesus Christ, with a very stark choice. If you want to continue to insist that you have it together, that you are good enough, that of course God would choose you, that you're worth it, that you are powerful, impressive, beautiful, and that God owes you something, then there's no blessing for you. There's only woe. You have slammed the door to the kingdom in your own face. But if you're ready to admit that you have nothing to give, nothing to commend yourself with, you have no rights or claims on God. You've got nothing. You are destitute. You are poor. You are naked. You need him. You need him. If you're ready to admit that, then all the riches of the kingdom of heaven await you. Even now, you can stop pretending. You can put down the mask. You can own your failings and your weaknesses. And you can be who you really are. And you can begin, for the first time in your life, to taste true happiness. The thing we all desire. The thing we are all so busy chasing. You can begin to taste it for the first time in your life. The kind of happiness that doesn't turn sour. The kind of happiness that doesn't change with the wind of our circumstances. The kind of happiness that doesn't depend on you or on other people or on what's going on around you. Because it's from God. It's a happiness from God and He doesn't change. That's the invitation. When Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the invitation he's extending. He's extending the invitation of the first beatitude. The first blessing, the first word of his sermon is an invitation to you. And it's an invitation to you right now. Will you accept it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the very first word that the Lord Jesus spoke to his disciples was a word of grace. We thank you that the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of grace. We thank you that your blessing comes to those who don't deserve it, who could never deserve it. Please help your disciples to rejoice in the security of your favor for us. And help us to live out of that favor. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning, anyone watching online, who is not yet a disciple of the Lord Jesus, please will you let them hear the invitation of this beatitude, of this blessing. The invitation to true happiness. Help them to see their own poverty. And to see the riches of the kingdom that you want to give them freely in your son. Help us all to receive him and to live under his gracious, loving rule. In his name we pray. Amen.